Let's take out our Bibles. We're going to be in the book of Jude today. We are beginning a brand new series to the book of Jude called the Open Your Eyes series. Uh, today is the first part and that allows it to be awakened to the book of Jude. We're going to be doing the intro of the book of Jude and two verses. I know that sounds exciting. Just two verses. Now, this is only a book of 25 verses and I'm doing a four part series. Why? Because some people have the gift of healing. Some people have the gift of miracles. I have the gift to make the Bible take much longer to read than it should ever be intended. That's my particular spiritual gift. So I'm sharing that with you because the Bible says to use all your gifts within the congregation. So I'm doing that for you. Uh, we're going to be doing two verses. And for some of you, you would think, man, an intro week. No, I didn't want to come to intro week. Intro week is where Lance sets up the who wrote it and why do we care and all that stuff, right? Now, we are a teaching church. A teaching church means that I am not interested in merely impressing you or impacting you and, and, and spoon feeding you a message. What I do in the way that I teach is I try to show you how I arrived where I arrived so that at home you can do all the same types of study. You can do all the same types of asking questions. Lord, why did you put this in here? What is the author trying to say? Who's he writing to? How would that really have sounded back when that author said that? And to those particular people, how should I read that word? But I understand being in a teaching church is not quite as smooth as normal. As I was reflecting on that, I was reflecting on the fact that recently I went to UC Davis, which is a teaching hospital, right? I don't know how many of you have ever been in a teaching hospital, but UC Davis, what it means is, is that I went in for a groin injury and four guys were in my room. That's what it meant. It meant that when you were hoping that you would go in for a groin injury and nobody would be there, somehow it'd be an imaginary doctor. They brought in other dudes, even a guy named Carlos who just stood by the door and was just like, and he wouldn't answer my questions. I don't know what was happening with that guy. But anyway, there's some awkwardness in a teaching hospital and there's some awkwardness in coming in and going, man, really a whole week on an intro and two verses. I can tell you this. If you blow past the introduction and do not know the who, what, where, when, why stuff, you're not going to read the book right. If you do not take the time to slow down and process the framework upon which this letter is written, you're going to miss it. We're not going to do that. We are going to slow down and we're going to say, God, what do we need to know so that we can read the rest right? If a parent was writing a letter to a child, they would have a different nuance than a stranger to a stranger. If you were to write to a person in prison, you would refer to different life choices than you would refer to somebody on the outside. Context matters. We are so focused on application. God, tell me something from my life right here, right now. You can't even get that until you first know the author's intent. Then you can get to application. And I would suggest to you that today you will walk out of this service absolutely blown away at what God loaded into two verses in the book of Jude. So just to give you an idea on what those verses say and, and whether they sound impressive or not at the beginning, who cares? We're going to dig into it, but 
let's just read through. It's in, if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one under the seat in front of you. It's a page 1027. So it's right before the last book of the entire Bible. So it goes Jude Revelation. Let's just read the, the first couple verses and then I want to dive into what we have. It says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God, the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. That's it? That's all we got? What's in there? Everything you need to know. Jude was not going to be accepted into the canon of Scripture. When I refer to the phrase canon, what I mean is the acceptable list of books. Uh, for example, uh, our canon that we run off of is the Old Testament and the New Testament. If you go to uh, a traditional Roman Catholic view, their Bible is bigger because they include... The Apocrypha. The Apocrypha are extra-biblical writings, but they believe them to have value and inspiration, so they are in between the two Testaments. We'll refer to those today as well. But because of those books, because of the fact that Jude is such a tiny little book, it's actually the fourth shortest book. Second John, Third John, Philemon, they're all smaller. But at 25 verses from an author that there was questions as to who it was. And because the fact that he quotes those extra biblical books, it was in question. Although it was in the first accepted list of books in AD 120. The same list that rejected Hebrews and 1 Peter. It too was brought into question and it took a while. By the time of the fourth century, it was locked down and they said, no, 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 we know this is legit. We know this is solid. We now know who wrote it. We now know why he wrote it. And we now understand the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is in this book and it became accepted and not questioned after that. Well, what I wanted to share this morning as we dive into this are some thoughts on how the world works so follow with me god is sovereign sovereignty means that god gets to do what he wants to do god is in control god is in charge and it seems when we're walking down in this world that life is somewhat chaotic which is we have a lot of things that catch us off guard well i didn't know that i didn't understand that was coming or i never saw that happening with my job or i never would have met that person and it seems very very random it's because our lives seem random in micro we keep thinking that the macro level or the big level is random as well that is incorrect god is in charge God knows what he's doing. God is orchestrating events in the macro. And the way that we know that is because of books like Revelation. I don't know if you went through it with us as Bridgeway or whether or not you study that on your own. But you remember what that book does is John the beloved, John the disciple right? John the revelator was on the island of Patmos and Jesus gave him a revelation of what was going on in the real world. 
He pulled back the curtain and let John see that God was on the throne, is on the throne, will continue to be on the throne. And what he revealed was God orchestrated the events in the beginning. But what was shocking to us was that it revealed that the end time events are orchestrated as well. God called his shots ahead of time. He said, this is the time when I'm going to roll into town. This is what's going to happen in the world scenario. This is how Satan is going to be handled. He will be bound for this amount of time. He will be released here. He will have his way here. I'll shut him down here. And this is what eternity looks like. If God has orchestrated the beginning, if God has orchestrated the end, we ought to have a lot more peace in the middle. Amen? What I have found is that our lives are not reflecting the fact that God is in charge. Understand this. If God is doing these things, then there is no hoping that Christ will have a bride at the end in the wedding feast of the Lamb. He will. There is no question about the redemption of Christ being effective and the power of cross, the cross working. There is no fear that God won't be able to implement his plan. When it comes to the big themes of the universe, the fill in the blank in front of you is this. We are living in largely orchestrated events. We are living in largely orchestrated events. That means practically it should have an impact on how we live. How ought that to be? We should be exhibiting the fruit of the spirit. Do you know what the fruit of the spirit is? Now it's in the New Testament. It talks about it in Galatians. For the fruit of the spirit is love joy, peace, patience. Remember that list? That list, as it goes on, should be emanating out of our hearts. We should naturally be producing and naturally being operating in things like that. If we have a problem loving other people or feeling loved by God, we have a root problem. If we have a problem with patience for the people around us, we have a root problem. If we have a problem with a settledness in our spirit where we are always agitated and always in drama and always working something up and constantly being in worry, we have a root problem. In my backyard, we have a series of vines that grow up on the wrought iron fence. We live uh, backed up to a wetlands. And there are four of those types of bushes that grow up and then they kind of wrap themselves around through the grating. And it basically goes like this. It goes dark green, dark green, light green, dark green. One of these things is not like the other. There's like the little messed up one in the middle. And we're kind of going, you know, it's not dead. It's just different color. It's not dead. It just seems to be struggling. So this poor vine, and since it's not dead, you don't want to pull it out and start all over again because it's a massive bush. And we don't want to pull it out where it's all the fence is covered and then there's this big gap in the middle and you got to wait for like three more years for it to show up again. So we kept trying to go, oh, I hope he comes back. I hope he comes back, right? And we found out kind of why, at least this is our guess why it's so messed up. We have the cutest ground squirrels. As a matter of fact, we were looking out the window the, uh, when it was a little bit sunnier about a, a month and a half ago. And they all, we have a a little rock formation that creates a waterfall for our pool in the back. And they all sat on a different rock. And it looked like they were posing for a family picture, right? (laughs) 
And so my daughter named them all, right? So we had them all named. Okay, as cute as they are, they are wrecking havoc in our yard. They're digging holes everywhere and there's all these problems. Well, they dug so many holes around the root system, it seems that they've broken off the majority. And so that plant is struggling to reflect its true identity. Are we all tracking on what I'm saying? If we have a problem reflecting the fruit of the spirit, (laughs) reflecting the fruit of the spirit, (laughs) that's hard to say together. If we're having difficulty with the fruit of the spirit, there's a reason for that. We have some roots that are not healthy. They've been broken off somehow, whether they were broken off by the enemy or they never developed in the first place. I have no idea, but let me explain what it should look like. We are loved people. As children of God, we are never to believe that we are abandoned or ignored. We are not to think that we have to earn God's love or that we are filled up by the love of another human being. God has poured out more than enough love. So we in turn pour out love that we have received on others in the man that, in the manner that was exhibited to us by God. The way our lives should be is that we are naturally loving because we have been so loved. The Bible was very clear that there is greater love has no man than this, but to lay down his life for his friends. Has Christ not done that for us? Has God been chintzy in his love? Has God been stingy in his love? He has not. His love has poured out. And here's part of the problem. We are not loving like God because we are not accepting or understanding or receiving God's love into our lives. There's a problem with our root system. What about joy? Our future is brighter than our past. The promises of God and his words say that our savior went to prepare a place for us in heaven and that he's coming back to take us to that safe place where we can be with him forever. And there's nothing the enemy can do about that. Never was, never will be. Should our lives not then be hallmarked by joy? Why then is there so much grumbling? Why then is there so much complaining? Why then is there so much lack? Something's wrong with our root system. Somehow we have detached from the vine. What about peace? If our father is on the throne and orchestrating these events, things are in his control. It's not up for grabs. And we should be okay with that. What about patience? The Bible says that our job down here is to glorify him. That means our only responsibility is to be obedient, not to produce for him. Therefore, we should have no problem being patient in waiting for him to do what he wants to do. Why are we so impatient? Why are we demanding God follow our timing? Why are we pushing on him and saying you're not doing it right when we don't even know what right means? If our lives are to be focused on being still and letting him be God, why are we constantly impatient with him? And not only that, he has been patient with us. He consistently goes, hey, look, you did that sin again for the 400th time today. If he has been so patient, why are we so impatient with one another? Why are you so tight with everyone else? Why are you so unwilling to cut other people's slack? Is it because God has been hard edged on you? 
The answer to that is no. And if you think he has, you do not see your father rightly. We could go through all the rest. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I think you get it. What I am trying to display to you is that we are living in largely orchestrated events and Jude is about to walk us into that worldview. He's about to say there are bigger things going on here and we need to be alert. We need to be awakened. We need to understand and have our eyes opened to what is really going on behind the scenes. It is not just the natural we are engaging with. It is the supernatural as well. And there are ways that we should see God and ways that we should see the enemy and ways that we should see each other that we need to operate differently in. But before he ever gets to the hardcore cutting, the hardcore surgical removal of garbage out of our lives, before he gets to any of that stuff, he gives us our identity up front. Understand that Christianity operates off the premise that we are children of God adopted into the family of God. And some of you need to drink in who you are in today's message. You need to accept it. You need to allow it to get from here down to here. You need to stop the hardened process between the two. When I tell you that God loves you, you need to receive that and not just accept it as intellectual fact. Jude 1. Here we go. We're flying this morning. (laughs) Jude 1, it says this. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. So who wrote it? Ah, A guy named Jude. Shocker. In the Bible, the name Jude is a shortened form of Judas, which is a modern form of Judah and the same form as Judea. So in the Bible, if you have any of those names, they're all the same thing. Jude, Judas, Judah, Judea, all the exact same stuff, just different variations of the exact same word. In the Bible, they used to name their kids after patriarchs. They would name their kids after people who had high respect. And Judah was one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Judah was one of the 12 sons of Jacob. As a matter of fact, the name Jacob is where you get the derivative James. James is a form of Jacob. So they were always going back and they would name their kids somebody that was popular, somebody that was honorable. And that's why it seems everyone in the Bible has the same name. All women are named Mary, right? Here's what's fascinating. In an examination of the 12 disciples, right? There's only 12 of them. Six of them share a name. Are you kidding me? Seriously, we can't be more creative than that. Why? There's two Simons, two Judases, and two James. So anytime you're in a group setting having dinner and you yell out a name, two people will respond. That's frustrating. No wonder Jesus started changing all their names. He's like, this is dumb. You're now Peter, dude, because I'm tired of calling everybody Simon. So Jude means Judas. Do you know that there were two apostles, two disciples named Judas? Now we always know the most popular one, right? And that's Judas, what? Iscariot. Everybody knows him because he screwed up really bad. 
And so he's kind of the popular Judas. Did you know there was another one? If you look through the account in Luke, who lists off the, uh, all the disciples, the 12, he lists out, there's another one. There is Judas, the son of James. And you go, that's him. Because really, the book of Matthew was written by who? Matthew, okay. And then he, he was a disciple. I'm just giving you a heads up on that one. All right, uh, little lead in, John was written by... Yeah. All right. So now we're with us. So, (laughs) so Matthew and John, their disciples, they wrote a book and you would assume that because he's an apostle and you see a guy named Jude who wrote a book, man, that's gotta be the guy. What's the problem with it? He was the son of James. And this says what Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Whoops. The other thing is in this book, this guy distances himself from the apostles. So whoever this is was not an apostle. So how did he get in here? As a matter of fact, there are eight options of who this guy could be. Six of them are boring. I already gave you the seventh, so I'm going to give you the eighth. This is the half-brother of Jesus. Jesus had brothers? Yeah, he did. He actually had four. Their names were Joseph, Simon, right? Of course, right? Joseph, Simon, James, because everyone else is named James, and Judas. So as a matter of fact, the three names of the disciples all having the same name are all in Jesus' family too. So he has James, Joseph, Simon, Judas, and he had two sisters. How do we know that? Because the Bible says, aren't his brothers, and it names them, and his sisters, plural, among us. That means there were at least seven kids in the family. Here's my first question. Why, as a parent, would you ever have more kids after the Messiah? It's always a letdown. No matter who you have, it doesn't matter. You had the son of God first. Everything after that is always Jesus never had colic. (laughs) Jesus didn't hate peas. Jesus, you know, and it goes on and on. Jesus never brought home a bee. Jesus, you know, and I mean, talk about living in a shadow. Really? I mean, and, and Mary and Joseph, I mean, everything after they're like, Gosh, after we had our first kid, he went so well. I think our other kids are dumb. (laughs) Why? Because at the age of 12, we have Jesus instructing people in the temple. And so everyone's like, well, we must have a prodigy. This is fantastic. All our children are going to be like this. No, they're not. All the rest of them were regular. And it's really irritating to go to school when your brother is Jesus. Every yearbook picture is Jesus. You know what I mean? It's really. So as hard as it was for a lot of people to get saved, how hard was it for the siblings to get saved? Because here's what's ironic. Jude isn't the only brother that wrote a book. The book of James was written by James. You're, You're all tracking. That's his brother too. So James, the brother of Jesus, wrote a book. Jude, the brother of Jesus, wrote a book. So somehow those guys got saved. And you go, well, of course they got saved. They're the brother to the Messiah. No, that made it worse. There is one person in the world you don't want to be the Messiah. It's your sibling. 
as much as you hate them of going, man, you always take my clothes, blah, blah, and you're what? I have to go through you to get to heaven? Seriously? As a matter of fact, the Bible says that Mary even fell into the groove that not only did they not believe he was the Messiah, but they said, quote, he is out of his mind. None of the family was tracking and they thought he was slipping. And this demonstrates what type of humility Jesus walked in because we do not have another story until he's 30. How do you not know that he's the son of God after you lived with him for 30 years? That's humility. He was under the radar. And when he finally began to go public, his brothers made fun of him. And they said, if you're really this big dog miracle worker guy, why don't you go public, man? And you can imagine James, who seems to be the next oldest brother, is dogging him. And Judas is in the back going, yeah, that's what he said. Yeah. Yeah, Jesus, go public. James is like, I already said that. Whatever. Yeah. You're like, Judas, shut up. You're just dumb. They didn't believe in him. But then one day, something happened. They watched their brother die. Now, I don't care what kind of sibling rivalry is going on between the two of you, but when your brother, who seems to be this religious fanatic, and everybody seems to think he's kind of a big deal, as much as you're frustrated, as much as you are jealous, you began to see your brother beaten publicly, stuck on a stick on a public highway, embarrassed, shamed, cast a shadow over your whole family, and he dies right in front of your face. How do you reconcile that? Is that not ripe with dysfunction and counseling written all over it? What a horrible, horrible time. But then something happened that changed everything. It says within the 40 days after Jesus came back to life, he appeared to the apostles and appeared to James. How was that meeting? Hey, bro, what what are you doing? What, what, what are you doing here? Seriously? I saw you die. Yes, you did. And now you see me alive. Here's the deal. I got a job for you to do. I mean, the whole time your eyes are this big. I can't believe this guy's alive. No way. And then you feel bad. And then you have guilt. And you have all this problem and stuff in your heart and in your mind. And you don't even know what to do. And he says, hey, real quick, I need you to do a job for me. Yeah, Jesus, anything. Okay, well, first of all, I got mom taken care of. I handed her off to John at the cross. So John's got her covered. So we're all good there. Here's what I need you to do. All my boys, except John, because he's taking care of mom, all my boys are going to die. And when they die for my sake, I need you to step up and take over the new family business. Y'all remember how dad taught us to do carpentry? Okay, well, I'm now going to teach you how to run the church. When all the disciples and all the apostles, except for John, were dead by A.D. 70, guess who stepped up and took over the Jerusalem church? James the Just. When he wrote his book, he didn't refer to being the brother of Jesus either. Why did James and Judas not mention they're the brother of Jesus? I don't know. Why wouldn't you? Maybe you're the one that publicly everyone knows your name is even written down in the most popular book of all time as being an unbeliever. 
Do you remember while everyone else believed and the disciples were out there, they all went and died because of the name of Jesus Christ. And you were the one making fun of him. You're the one that lived with him. You were the one that was closest to him. And you didn't even believe he was the Messiah. How do you get cocky about that? Not only that, if you are a true believer in Christ, you are not arrogant. You do not try to use your name as leverage on anybody else. So truly humble men never attach themselves to the biggest and brightest and best as if they were to say that they too were a son of God. They knew that he was their half brother and they got the bad half. So for them, it was a matter of humility When anyone asked Jude who he was, he would say, well, I can go by two names. I'm a slave of Jesus, first of all. You go, well, it says servant. Understand, there is a servant, which is diakonos, and there is a slave, which is doulos. Those are two different words in Greek. He said, I am a slave to Jesus. I did not follow him when he was here in his earthly life. So I will be his everything now that he's gone and resurrected. I will be anything he wants me to be. I will not use it to my glory. I will not use it to my advantage. I'm just a man just like you. I am a servant. I am a slave of Jesus Christ. And you know who else I am? If you have no idea who I am because I am Mr. Obscurity. You want to know who I'm related to? The guy running the church right over there. That's my other brother that's more popular than me. Understand that we all, in our own little ways, are always craving for attention. God, make me important. Make me important. Make me have a ministry. Allow me to do this. Give me some gifts so I can do this. Let my friends think I'm a big deal. We're always doing that. And Jude said, you know what? I don't care. I don't want any of it. You know who I am? I'm third string. And I'm all right with that. My Jesus is first string. My brother James is running the church at second string. And you know what? I'm probably never going to play in the game, but I'm just happy to sit on the bench. I am here for my king. You want to talk about identity? That man knows who he is. Do you know who you are? Are you still playing games? I will tell you that every sin that you and I commit is because we are not living according to our identity in Jesus Christ. It says who he's writing to. To those like us, to those who are three things, we'll talk about identity, to those who are called, what do you mean called? To those who are called, that's a past tense, meaning that in the past, someone whispered your name. Who was that? The father. In the past, the father initiated a relationship with you. No matter how much we want to mess it around, the idea is you were never going to choose God. There was never a time when you were dead in your sins that you were going to think it was a good idea to surrender and give up your life and start living for God. No, it was not your idea to go back to church. It was God's idea for you to go back to church. He's the one that called you at home in your heart. He's the one that stimulated the very interest, the prayers that you prayed. He's the one that blew up your life so that you might understand there was stuff bigger than you. God initiated you. God called you. There is no believer around in the world or ever been that was not first called by God. So in the past, our Heavenly Father initiated a love relationship. You know who else you are? You are beloved in God the Father. Beloved in God the Father. That means it's not... The father involved in that you are beloved in God, the father 
What does that mean? It means God loves you. It means God likes you. It means that you are acceptable in his sight. It means that you are clean. It means that you are right. It means that you can run up to your dad and call him daddy. It means that you can come into the throne room and crawl up on his lap. Why can you do that? Because of the cross of Jesus Christ. His blood has covered you. His grace has poured out on you. His forgiveness has washed you. And therefore, you are acceptable in the eyes of God. So in the past, God called and initiated you. In the present, you are acceptable because of Jesus Christ. But he's not done. It says, and you are kept for Jesus Christ, not kept by Jesus Christ. So who is the one present to keep us throughout the future to get us home, but the Holy Spirit. So in the past, the father initiated a love relationship in the present. Jesus has made it so that we are fully acceptable to God and the Holy Spirit will keep us in that glorious place until we are glorified. In one verse, in one line, you see your identity in God. He was all over you before you even cared. He's all over you now while you care. And he's going to be all over you when you ebb and flow in your faithlessness. God has his mark on you. His name is on you. It is on your forehead. And therefore, what happens to his property reflects on him. And he's really good at getting his stuff back home. Why did Jude write this book? Intriguingly enough, there are direct quotes between this and 2 Peter. As a matter of fact, the majority of Jude is included in 2 Peter. Similar themes, all kinds of references. And so scholars don't know who wrote first. Did Peter borrow from Jude? Did Jude borrow from Peter? You would assume that if Peter borrowed from Jude, then it would have given an authenticity of saying, Peter just called that scripture, so why are we hassling this book at all? Whatever, scholars can argue all that stuff. But what did Peter and Jude know and write about in common? Bad guys were in the church. Peter said there will come a day when bad guys will infiltrate the church of God. And Jude said they're right here. What you are reading is a letter from a pastor worried that his kids, worried that his sheep, worried that his congregation will get tore apart by bad guys. What kind of bad guys? Guys with bad theology, guys with bad lifestyles, guys with bad, arrogant behavior, guys who don't care who they slime, they don't care who they speak against, they are disobedient, they are rebellious, and they're wrecking the church. And Jude can't stand for it anymore. As a matter of fact, he starts the book by going, man, I really wanted to write you guys a letter about something awesome. But I can't let these people take you out. So we're going to spend our time talking about some pretty serious stuff. You got some bad guys among you. And we cannot let them take your church. It says, May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Mercy and peace was the normal Jewish greeting to begin with. So they added in the love part. That's a Christian thing. 
May they be multiplied to you. May you be overflowing with. If we're ever going to make it through this life, we need the overflowing living water of God. When we are talking about God's traits, understand they do not wane. They do not get less. They do not bail out. When Jesus was talking to the woman at the well, he said, if you knew who I was, you would ask me for a drink of water because I have streams of living water coming out of me that I would never thirst again. Why? Because there's always enough. There's always more. You remember when Jesus fed the 5,000, there were 12 basketfuls left over. When Jesus fed the 4,000, there were seven basketfuls left over. There's always enough in Jesus. And so all this garbage that you believe about, you know what, I probably shouldn't pray today because God's sick and tired of me coming. God doesn't get sick and tired. He has more than enough. The Bible says that his mercies are new every what? Morning. You know that. He's got more mercy for you the next day. And then when you screw up, he's got forgiveness for you again as you are repentant. So the bottom line is, God's not going to run out of his love. He has more than enough love to cover your inadequacy. He has more than enough love to cover over your doubt. He has more than enough mercy and peace and love. So whatever you need, the true resources are more than enough in God. Do you understand why this book is important? Do you understand that these 25 verses that we do not read very often are critical? Do you know who God is? Because our lifestyles are not reflecting that we do. Do you know who your dad is? He's the king of all kings. And he doesn't run out. If you think I'm preaching to you and not preaching to myself, you're mistaken. In all the bad decisions I make in my life, I keep asking Lance, why are you acting like that? What is wrong with you? What is missing in you? What are you not understanding? If you're being impatient and blowing up on something, what is raw in you? What has Jesus not been allowed to heal? Why is it so hard for you to be slandered by someone else and not feel like you want to jump down their throat? What is it? Because God has not made you secure. Do you really have to be that defensive when someone comes after you? And even if they don't come after you, you're still defensive. What is it? Is it that God has not said that you're valuable? Is it that you have not received from your father some type of love? The answer is not a problem with God. It's that I'm not receiving it. Some of my roots are broken. And the same is true for you. If we struggle seeing the fruit of the spirit pour out in our lives, it's not God who hasn't ministered to you. It's you have not received it. And if you have received it, how selfish not to pour it out. We have a good dad. We do not have a dysfunctional family. We have a functional family in our heavenly father. He has taught us well. That means we can love the neighbor kids rightly. Because we're not angry. We're not at our wits end. We're not running on empty. We're not wishing we had more because our heavenly father has poured out more than enough. 
Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for not only rescuing Jude, but then Holy Spirit breathing through him and inspiring his words. That as he writes them down, our life comes bright. So Lord, we pray that that which is true about our identity would be locked into us. That as we go out of this place, we begin to dwell on what you have done for us, who you are to us, what you are in us, and that we might be renewed. Holy Spirit, light us up. Show us what we need to know. Illuminate your scripture to us. Reveal yourself to us in our prayer times. Show us why the world doesn't have anything for us. Show us that we have been filled up in you, God, that we don't need and crave things from the world and crave things from our neighbors. God, show us what it means to be filled up so we don't envy. Show us what it is to have the fruit of the spirit so we don't go after the lust of the flesh. God, show us a new way of living in Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you. Be glorified in us. In your name we pray. Amen.